1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and GoGo. You're listening to 3RRR. Triple R. is a science show. We've got a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning.
2: Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? Good. Looking forward to some science on the radio.
1: <laughs> well, you're in the right place. Actually, I sure am. You're, you're, you're the producer of it. You won't hear it on the radio. You're, you're in the, the inner bubble.
2: I know. I'm like at yeah. the epicenter.
1: Well, yeah. We, uh, Chris has got another. He uses the term orifice.
3: Event Horizon (laughs) Hey Chris Hello (laughs) How are you? You well? Oh yes, yes, marvellous Good to be here Good, you're back You had your little trip overseas Yeah, been there, did that Yes. Mm. Yes, that's right
1: And Dr
4: Cromo, how are you? Uh, Dr.
1: Cromer, <laughs> or oh, Dr. Jeff? Well, what, what would you world. prefer? We haven't decided, have we? You've been Dr. Cromo for so many years. Yeah,
4: sure. I was going to say let's have a phone in, but I could <laughs> tell you exactly <laughs> how many how many people will phone in. If
3: Did we, don't, we don't set a minimum sample size, we could get this sorted out on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> slash Facebook. Yeah. So, <laughs> folks, if you're um, uh, if you're interested in uh, a name change from Dr. Chromo to Dr. Jeff,
1: or
4: anything else, or, or, <laughs> oh,
1: or Chris mm, KP to something more appropriate. Kind of
4: worms. So I uh,
1: <laughs> send us actually, a Actually, I realise
4: that I'm the only suit. Named person yeah. left. left. Um, so I'm happy to be Dr. Jeff. Yeah. Oh, you, you
1: uh, think uh, Shane's my real name? Uh, that's good. <laughs> Dr. Crystal, let's jump into some news. And Crystal can't possibly be a real name. <laughs> Dr.
2: Crystal, I know it does, it does uh-huh. sound, I mean, you know, someone who's got a degree in chemistry to be called Crystal. It's kind yeah. of one of those things like having a um, an undertaker called Mr. Death or something.
1: Yeah, or parents who grew up in the 60s. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> maybe one or the other. Yeah. Uh, look, I've been excited this week, this week by bionics research, medical bionics. Melbourne is an absolute hub of medical bionics, and even the President of the United States has been talking about it. Yes, this week.
1: Bionics or Melbourne? Bionics
2: and Melbourne together. Um, um. Obama. This I know, this week, um, the uh, POTUS, as he's known to his friends, uh, uh, the President of the United States, President Obama, was, a, user. was a guest <laughs> presenter on the Science Channel um, yeah. in the US, and he actually used one of his little segments to talk about some Australian research on the bionic spinal cord, which I think we talked about mm. on the show a few weeks ago. But the fact that even the President of the United States is talking about bionics really speaks to the fact mm. um, that this is a hot, hot area. And Melbourne, with the bionic ear, um, the cochlear implant, and the bionic eye, now the bionic spinal cord Mm. you know it's research that's really progressing but of course we're not the only people in the world working on it and this week um there was a research article published in the prestigious journal nature which was talking about another, um, bionic, uh, implant that was, uh, going to help enable, uh, uh, paraplegic and quadriplegic people to regain function, um, in their, in their limbs. And so this is, a, a, this, this brain machine interface, which is just fascinating, which is where, um, technology that's implanted into the brain can bypass the injured spinal cord and directly innovate muscles in the arms or legs or, you know, um, and then be able to restore function. And so this paper was published, um, at, it's an invention that came out of a company um, called Battelle in Ohio, and they teamed up with the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center to do the development and the clinical trials. And so this is a chip, uh, a tiny chip, smaller than a pea, um, that's been implanted directly into the brain. It's a device called NeuroLife. And what it does is that it then hooks up to a very um, high-definition muscle stimulation sleeve that's worn by um, the person on their forearm Um, and it's all connected up with wires. So at the moment, this is a completely wired system. So um, Mm. the patient, who's a 24-year-old quadriplegic, Ian um, Burkhart, he's paralysed from the shoulders down, but he was using this device. He was able to gain reuse of his arm and his hand. And it was amazing. The videos, you can see him. He can actually pick up uh, and move and turn over small objects. He can stir a cup. He can swipe a credit card. He can even play... Um, a music guitar video game It's Mm. quite refined and really quite specific motor control Mm. that's been restored. Mm. And the real piece of technology that's fascinating is actually the algorithms. Yes, the future of science is maths (laughs) because it's Mm. all about being able to find the right algorithms to interpret the electrical signals that are coming out of the brain and actually work out what does that mean Mm -hmm. and then move the right muscles. And that, that that machine learning, that sort of um, being being able to um, test and reuse those algorithms over and over and over again to see if you've got it right, um, that process has taken several years. I mean, mm. the, 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 this patient was first implanted in
1: 2014, mm. um, and I am re- reading about this in because um, it was in Nature this week. on yes. I think mid midweek, and uh, the the hardest part with this technology is that it has to recalibrate, and the algorithms have to rerun every time you start to use it. So, that I mean, at the moment, that's the big bit that holds. Not to mention the fact someone has to drill into your skull and you know put this implant in, which is the difference between the Melbourne version actually, which Absolutely. doesn't do that. That's why the Melbourne. Yeah. These but algorithms, are, you know, they, they are so complicated to get this. It's amazing what their bodies do naturally, but they're so complicated you have to recalibrate every time, which you know, it's the age-old thing of, you know, today hard... In ten years' time, there'll probably be a small chip that just does that in a few seconds, and off you go.
2: Well, I think that's the other thing by looking at the system as well. I mean, this this um, uh, this patient actually has a physical jack mm, in the back big. of his head. It's really big. The the sleeve that he wears is actually wired physically to a large controller mm. box. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a, it's a wired system at the moment. And I think the um, that this is where the future of the technology will go. And just to backtrack a little bit, the way in which the Melbourne um, uh, interface is different is that um, it doesn't rely on that direct brain mm. surgery. The the Melbourne device Stint. is a stent, which is similar to yeah, the stents really. used Putting in... <laughs> In your heart, <laughs> <laughs> it's changed very excited about this. Maybe well, we, had t- we
1: had Terry O'Brien from um, yes. Melbourne Health and University of Melbourne yeah. on last week, and we we covered it. It was just, and I the, mean, it's and just it's, amazing. And the exciting thing work.
2: about that technology is it's now being um, spun out into a company, mm. um, a startup. So I think this is the entrepreneurship that we want to encourage in Australia. Is not only just do this research, but that Melbourne technology, that minimally invasive brain implant, is now being spun up into, into a startup company mm. called mm. Smart Stent. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the um, uh, that's kind of where our ICSJ's innovation innovation future you know is taking this research and then moving it into these product developments mm. so you can turn it into something that it can actually yeah. help patients. That's
3: cool work. Mm. Chris, get are you're next, what have you got? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what I haven't got but what, uh, what I, I, you know I don't know what people have got is inflammatory bowel disease. <laughs> um, and okay. I can tell you that, and I know you're wondering, that that's actually much less common in some parts of the world than others. Right. And in parts of the world where inflammatory bowel diseases are less common, uh, these are places where there's actually often a higher level of intestinal worm infestation. Uh, and there's been all kinds of links made between these two things, and we're learning more and more every day now about how your gut flora has a lot to say about your health more broadly. Um, and I, I draw this to your attention now because there was a, uh, a study that came out online in the, in the last week, <coughs> Basically, they'd done some mouse work, um, and they got some mice that had um, that had. Uh they had normal mice and they had mice that had slightly inflamed bowels. Now, the mice with the slightly inflamed bowels basically had this because they didn't produce a lot of mucus in their bowels and they had a higher incidence of, of a particular bacterium. Now, bacteria, and this, even this particular one, um, is quite common in, in, in the, uh, the intestines, but if their levels get too high, then you start getting all kinds of issues. What they then did is they introduced a couple of kinds of worms. <coughs> one was a sort of a corkscrew worm, one was a, a whipworm, um, into the bowels of these mice. And what that did is it actually triggered an immunological response the result of which is more mucus, and less bacteria, and basically what the what the paper refers to as a calming of the intestinal Ooh. inflammation, or a soothing, yeah. if soothing. you will. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Um, so essentially, this is all a balancing act. But what they're saying is that if you can you can influence the balance <coughs> inside the guts of anybody mm. by mm. introducing particular species and changing what's going on, and even something which can be really nasty when it gets out of control, our you know worms can in fact have a good influence on mm. the rest of the uh, of the gut ecosystem if you get the balance right. Mm. And there are probably more in our in the food
1: chain in our diets in times gone by than they are today. So, I don't, yeah. you know, they're, they're accepted parts of
3: Precisely. what
2: we So there's actually some work going on at James Cook University in Australia Is in there? this area, and they're actually using um, whipworm um, from pigs to, um, uh, to uh, treat uh, people with... Um, uh, in- Inflammatory bowel disease and yeah, Crohn's disease. So yeah, so, yeah, there's some amazing research that's going forward in and this area. And, the,
3: and those diseases are actually, uh, they're probably under-talked about. Oh, yeah, They're really yeah. quite significant yeah, in their yeah. impact. Yep, big uh, and, yeah, we And yet we don't talk about them a lot. Mm.
2: But mm. Uh, the microbiome research that's going on in terms of what bacteria you've got in your gut and how, you know, it's affecting. It's exploding. it's It's, mm. it's all about, it's all <laughs> oh, about the, the research. Gut. Right, yeah,
3: sorry, yes, the research <laughs> is exploding. I, I yeah. just
4: had mine done as well. I just had you the results back this week. Microbiome? I'm an average bloke. <laughs> so there you go. Was that it? Right. <laughs> it's interesting.
2: Did you participate in a research study or? No, it's, it's,
4: uh, it's a, he did Ubiome. his own. And you send it away and it give you, you actually get your raw data back. So you, really? so you can actually send it to an expert and say, I actually got mine done at two different points. Wow. But the point is that, and it was also in the news that, um, uh, one study found that if someone like me, who likes to find seek out probiotics and take them, yes, uh, it doesn't really have a huge impact on mm. the gut microbiota. So we're still a bit in the dark about which impacts uh, yep. can actually change. For good, I've yes. uh, got microbiomes so and the time, the time, is time scales a difference too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And,
1: the, and the latest out on that is that uh, those sorts of products, the you know the the stuff you buy in yes. your supermarket and so forth, may be helpful for some people. Yes, but it's unclear as how you determine whether you're one of them. Exactly. And mm. so that's a, anyway. Dr. Jeff, yes, what do you yes. got
4: for us? <sighs> I'm going from smart stents to smart water to to um to smart non-scientists in two minutes. Okay. <laughs> First of all, this I'll have to read this out. I was at a, a servo yesterday and took this uh, advert of this glass of smart water. I've seen that, yes. <sighs> right, I'll try to calm my anger. Vapor distilled remineralized water for a crisp, clean taste. Now let me deconstruct that. So you start So oh, this with is a product. You start a yeah. product, yeah? And uh-huh. it's uh, six fifty for two. You start with mineral water, you distill, you heat it up, and the steam forms and the water is separated from the minerals. Then you add the minerals back. No, oh. and that's it. <laughs> it's kind of what the Earth does. It, it's yeah. like starting with water, mineral water, ending up with mineral water, and charging people three times for it. Well, don't there's that one that, bond every
3: minute. But don't forget that process of removing the water and putting it back. That takes time and money. Uh, money know, is, and, to cover the cost.
1: And there's probably some love in there. You know, oh, you, sure I there mean, is. You're, you're
3: paying for the love.
4: One ah, <laughs> bond. PT you know. Barnum was right. It's still um, uh-huh. so the proper story. It's ridiculous. Proper story. Well, if someone's going to buy it, um, the proper story is the story of. A, it starts with a, a, a businesswoman. Chris Hempel in the U.S. Uh, in, in in Germany, who did some reading. She's a non-scientist. Did some reading about her two her twins, who, who had quite a debilitating condition called neiman pick Type C, which where they have crystals of, of um, back to crystal again crystals of cholesterol stuck inside their blood system and oh. can really mess up the whole mm-hmm. system. And she did so much reading that she came up with this idea that this um, sugar called cyclodextrin, which is in fibres. Um, uh, the ke- this chemical might actually dissolve these and she actually changed, she, asked, she went to the FDA the Food and Drug Administration in the US got them to change their rules, got them to inject it into her children and it really helped them, didn't wow. cure them but it helped them and then she emailed a researcher, an animal researcher that was looking at at um, at um, uh, atherosclerosis a thickening of the, the arteries that leads to heart attacks and said why don't you try this cyclodextrin and so he did uh, and they got amazing results that this sugar dissolved the cholesterol in this mouse model Wow! So, uh, so from a non-scientist doing their homework yeah, yeah. has led to a huge. Uh, this was reported in Science News, a breakthrough that may actually, in the end, help a whole lot of people suffering mm. from buildup of wow. cholesterol. Interesting, it's stuff. amazing. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now, uh, I was, uh, you know, just uh, sitting back, uh, listening to the um, Canadian PM talk about oh, how excited yes. he was about <laughs> quantum physics the other day, and, and it got me thinking that uh, you know I think of myself as having uh, quite a bit of quantum intuition.
3: <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, Smart water.
1: Uh, believe it or not, <laughs> this can be tested, folks, and you can test it at home too because um, there's a group out of um, the arts university in the um, Denmark that have been looking at um, what you know, whether or not we really have this issue with quantum physics, you know, because most of us when we hear about some of these, oh yeah, it can be a wave and a particle, pick a lane, people. What's wrong with you? You know? Um you know, we, we seem we have trouble with it. But in, in reality actually, this may not be quite as true as it sounds when we talk about it, because what these guys have done is they've built this particular game. And you play this game on your tablet or your phone or whatever, and what it does is it gets you to essentially, look, it feels like you're moving water from one location to another, but actually you're moving a series of quantum states from one location to another. And to do this and win in this game, you have to demonstrate a certain level of sort of quantum intuition. So, as you play this game over time, you kind of learn how this sort of works. And I have to say, it's a little addictive. (laughs) I may have spent a little bit of time in this game. Um, But what they found was when they got computers to try and computer uh, algorithms to try and do this, they weren't as good as people. Hmm. so people turned out to have a better quantum intuition than these algorithms specifically written for it. And so what they were able to do is take the moves and the way in which the humans were going about it and reintroduce those strategies back into their, their programming and, Uh you know, enhance um, what their computer (coughs) systems were doing. Now, um, I I have to say, I recommend, I don't normally do this, but it's free. So I recommend you actually download this app and have a play because it's fun. It's called quantum moves. And basically it's, um, it's a program that gets you to do. Um, run a certain algorithm. And and the thing I like about and this is just the you know geeky person in me, but you can watch the calculations going on as you make wow. the changes. So oh, that like. you see them sort of spurting across the, the top of the screen. And it's it's just really cool. And it, it shows you the sorts of things when you you know you have two wells and you're moving a particle from one to the other, how you'd go about doing that and, and the, the your sort of normal classical intuition will fail. So it's fun.
2: Um, this just sounds like the ultimate crowdsourcing. So is, if yeah. as you play the game, are you actually contributing to the data set? Well,
1: I think initially that's what's happened' happening. But now they've just released it I'm as a not, game. I'm not sure now. It was unclear from the article I read whether that was continuing, but to me it seems as though this is one of those things where if nothing else you get people interested in quantum physics
3: and everyone's going to turn out are like the a Canadian PM <laughs> <they> and <laughs> just be excited about quantum Are they going to track you down if you're extremely good and something some sort of program? I'm, I'm
2: imagining a helicopter landing yeah. on my roof and just going, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. excuse me, Dr Evans, please. Please
3: come this way. <laughs> well the thing is you can log in and so
1: when you're playing it shows you the names of the people with the best score and a couple of times I was like sitting oh, at you know yeah. you know 700 points and there's some nerd fest who's gone and got 985 I and mean, who is this yeah. bastard you know and it's probably some you know 6 year old kid from yeah. Carnegie oh, yeah. or something you <laughs> winning it's just do so nice. I don't
4: know. But that reminds me of the misconception people talk about quantum leaps There's something absolutely huge mm. but actually a quantum leap or jump is a, Discrete. G- is a step. Very, a, a very small, discrete step. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: that's, that's the way it is. Anyway, uh, quantum meaning quantized, meaning individual, blah blah blah, and that's where they get the term quantum leap. Uh-huh. Anyway, folks, we're going go to go to some music because we're going to call a guest up from Queensland in a moment. But uh, download that game, Quantum Moves. It's a bit of fun, and cool. it, it is free, so uh, I happily endorse it. Get your quantum on. Three, triple. We're back. You're listening to Einstein, the go-go on 3RRR. We uh, have an interview on the phone. Matthew Holden uh, is hopefully there. He's the postdoctoral research fellow in the ARC Centre of Excellence for Environmental Decisions in the University of Queensland. Matthew, can you hear us? I can hear you. That's great. Now, you're working on some um, statistical modelling and, and sort of... Uh, looking at the way people make decisions in processes like um around fisheries management and so forth i mean before we get on to your models i want to just sort of uh get some insight from you about how people do make these decisions and what sort of decisions we're talking about in terms of management
5: yeah, um humans make uh all sorts of decisions when it comes to fisheries management. It can be um, regulations on how many fish uh um, fishing fleets are allowed to remove from the ocean such that um, that the fishery is sustainable, that there's enough fish for future generations to be able to continue to
1: to fish sustainably. Okay. Um, yep. Yeah. Now, so and you've been looking at other ways to, I guess, take a take a crack at these decisions using using modeling. What what sort of modeling do you use, and how does that work?
5: Yeah. So basically, what we do is we um, we write down a m- mathematical formulas for how fish grow in the ocean, how they reproduce, and then we figure out. What's the optimal amount of fish to remove such that um, they're still able to continue reproducing um, and providing fish for future generations? So based on, for example, the growth rate of the population, um, you can determine what is the most profitable amount of fish to take out of the ocean every year in the long run.
1: Okay. Now, what the information I was sent indicated that even when the models aren't quite right, they're still better than letting people make these choices.
4: How does, how does that
1: come
0: about?
5: Yeah, so what we did to take a first stab at taking a look at whether humans or models are better at recommending um, decisions about how much fish to take out of the ocean we developed an online computer game where players managed a hypothetical mm-hmm. salmon population. Okay. And so the object of the game was for the player to maximize their long-term profit, the amount of money um, they were making while fishing over the course of the game.
1: Mm. And, and, and the outcome of that is that they're not very good at that game? Is that, is that, is that what you're saying?
5: Well... That depends on how you define good um, they they certainly do better than than let 's say ra- random number generation. So if you just entered a random number of fish to take out of the ocean, you do worse than than humans um, so we, we We did set up a few just sort of hypothetical checkpoint rules that you could develop to fish this fishery. And the humans did better than those. But if you actually specified a mathematical model for how the fish grow, um, the the models recommended much better decisions than the users made. And that was even when the the model that you wrote down wasn't the wasn't the same model that was governing um, how the fish grew behind the scenes um, in the
6: actual game.
3: Mm. Matthew, it's, it's Chris K.P. here. If um, if the people who were, you know, doing this game uh, knew something about uh, fisheries modeling, but they were apparently quite bad at it, what what is that based on? What sort of biases or what, what assumptions are they making that is making their their decisions so poor?
5: Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to tell that because during during the actual game, we didn't ask them um, questions about um, what they were doing. We were able to sort of look at the data from how they were playing afterwards and figure out that some of them were fishing too conservatively. They were leaving too many fish in the ocean. Um, And that might be because these so the subjects that played this game weren't actually people who managed fisheries. They were students in environmental science courses that learned about fisheries management and all the techniques you could use. And so maybe they would be a, a bit more conservative um, given sort of their training.
2: Hi, Matthew. It's uh, Dr. Crystal here. I was just wondering, yeah. um, what's the current uptake or approach uh, from from the actual managers in using models? I mean, are, are people who manage fisheries open to using modelling at the moment? Or, or what's the state of play in terms of adopting some of the modelling that you've uh, put together? Yeah, fish
5: um, models are definitely used in fisheries management, especially um, the larger commercial fisheries. Um, for for smaller for smaller fisheries, it's some it's that sometimes less clear that they're actually using um, models. The the difficulty becomes while well, a scientist might come to the table recommending a decision based on a model then uh, on top of that you have different stakeholders such as people representing the, the fishing industry and also um, politicians and various other people who ha- have to weigh in on these decisions as well. So it's a complex process. Mm-hmm.
2: I guess if you're showing that your models actually uh, return a, uh, a maximum uh, long-term profit, then perhaps that might get their attention.
5: Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Mm. Matthew, it's, it's really interesting work and uh, thanks for chatting to us. It it is, um, it's fascinating, you know, hopefully, as Dr. Crystal was just saying, if you get this stuff out there and it becomes more, more public about, uh, what, what choices we should be making to, to, you know, to, to keep the balance in play. And I can imagine some of the models that they would use certainly don't, don't lean towards balance. But if you get this sort of stuff out there, then perhaps that will help with some of these uh, programs being, you know, managed in a way that is sustainable not just for the companies that are using them but also for for those who you know live on the planet otherwise so uh great work thanks for chatting to us
5: thanks for having me
1: that was uh matthew holden a postdoctoral research fellow in the arc center of excellence for environmental decisions up at the university of queensland it's funny every guest we've had from that particular center has kind of blown us away in terms of the work they do it's always. You may have thought this, but mm. actually, they're putting out some really good stuff, this CRC. I'm very impressed.
2: I just think it's fascinating that when it comes to quantum computing, people make better decisions. But when it comes to fisheries, yes. we've just heard that, yeah. com- that models make better decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really fantastic. It's really interesting to sort of probe those biases.
1: Yeah, exactly. And coming back to your point from before, Dr. Hustle, mass rules do more mass than physics, folks, <laughs> because you're not going to be able to make good decisions about fish. <laughs> that's
2: right. If, that's right. If, if you love fish, study math. Yeah, yeah. study maths. I mean, that's interesting. Study yeah. science. In I think give maths. a man a fish he eats for a day. <laughs> Teach
3: teaching quantum mechanics and he's got a food for life. Yeah, or or um, <laughs> <laughs> he can play a game for life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk to... Um, uh, Dr. Rowan Clark, who's an ecologist from Monash University. So hang around. You're listening to 3 oh, And By the way, folks, remember it's April M- Amnesty. If you have not subscribed to 3 R and you're listening for free, um, it's a great opportunity to win some prizes and do some good stuff and feel good about yourself. So um, you can either do that online or you can call the station during w- the working week. 3
4: Triple. Ah.
1: You are listening to Triple Arts Einstein and Gergo science program. I'm Dr Shane. In the studio we have our second guest for today. His name is Dr Rowan Clark. He's an ecologist from Biological Sciences at Monash University. Rowan, welcome to the studio.
0: Great to be here. Thanks, Dr Shane. Now,
1: continuing with the theme of technology and people being bad at making decisions that we seem to have had today accidentally, drones, how awesome are they? Um, you're using drones, though, to look at um aspects of ecology and the way in which birds in particular um counting them looking at them and so forth first of all i want to learn about the type of drones that you use because i think kids have two uh, kids have one version the u.s military have another version and and people people have two versions in their head it's either the ones you buy in the local store or the ones that drop bombs in the middle east which uh, there's something in the middle though
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely um (laughs) So so we actually prefer to call them unmanned aerial vehicles nice. uh, exactly nice. because unmanned aerial vehicles Yep so I I may UAVs. abbreviate to UAVs at yep. times yep. just like because it. of the way we talk about them but uh yeah, I guess drones for military uses, you know, mm. big, expensive things that can carry very big payloads, and then the things you can buy off the shelf are, are small and typically cheap, and they can um, usually only carry very small payloads, so yep. they've already got a little camera built in or something. Yeah. Okay. Um, the things we use are, are sitting in the middle, uh, so they can usually carry oh, a couple of kilo. Um, Okay. And that's sort of, you know, a small SLR camera um, or other sensors is, is typically what we're using. Um, so we're taking imagery of wildlife is, is the target. So. And are these... Are these
1: Drones autonomous. I mean, do they take care of themselves, or is there someone there driving them and steering them?
0: Fifty-fifty. So, okay. so most of them have built-in autopilot capacity, mm-hmm. um, but they still need to be you know, manually taken off and landed. And um, under the CASA regulations, they need to be in line of sight anyway. So, right. so you're not flying them over the horizon to do something, rather you're flying them in sight to to capture something that's that's visible to the the human eye as well. Okay.
1: So, so traditionally, I'd go out there in the bush or wherever, and I'd be counting birds or whatever. A species um why why do we want to use drones rather than have our incredibly talented and well resourced and trained <laughs> ecologists going i mean i mean there's a whole of um students out there going my field trips are going to get cancelled this is outrageous I mean, why why the why the push towards using these uavs
0: yeah absolutely so i i think that's a, a very reasonable concern and it's my concern as well i love field work yeah um <laughs> so so the idea of replacing it with technology is is not one that necessarily sits easy with with a lot of people um I, I guess the the angle that we came at it from is that uh, drones or, or UAVs are a new technology and there's a lot of hype about them in terms mm. of what they can actually do. And so we wanted to test whether images that are capped with UAVs are better than people that are experienced counting on the ground. Yeah. Um, so that's what we set out to do uh, with this study.
1: Okay, and, and um, I mean the obvious question there is what did you find? I mean obviously you can take high high definition pictures with the drones and presumably they can do things like sense movement and all other uh, the manner of um, technical sort of uh, feats. I mean, what what comes out of this sort of study?
0: Yeah, so we, we went to some cool field sites. Uh, we went to Ashmore Reef um, up near Indonesia, and uh, we also had people on Macquarie Island in the sub-Antarctics. And we flew UAVs over the top of breeding seabird colonies, so we were counting very large aggregations of, of seabirds. And at the same time, we had two, three, four experienced counters on the ground counting the birds. Okay. And so then we compared um, what the results were like for ground. Counters versus UAV derived images. Um, And it turns out you can't actually. look at how accurate they are because we don't know exactly how many birds mm. were in that population going okay. be to the count yeah. but we can look at how precise they are so how repeatable those counts are mm. and uh, it turns out that very experienced ground counters actually have a fair bit of noise around their counts so right. a good count might be a thousand and then the same uh, count repeated by another person standing shoulder to shoulder might be a thousand one hundred or a thousand two hundred okay um, whereas when we did it with UAVs and we provided those images to people to count on a computer Uh, a good count might be a thousand and then another count that follows up might only be a thousand and ten so so the difference is much smaller
1: now the, the only thing i'd say there is i mean it's kind of apples and oranges in a way not just because it's human and machine but one's from below and one's from above is this is this a different sort of game as as a result of that i mean i i don't know i mean is it easier to see these birds from below and keep track of them with a bright sky as the background compared to the other way round, is so as, uh, you know, did, did the should say, "Hey, hang on, you know, put this in a helicopter and let us count, and we'll be, we'll be kicking butt."
0: Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a fair statement to make. But the reality is that ground counters are the, the standard technique for mm. counting birds at the moment, and so um, we can't afford to put ecologists in helicopters too often. Uh, but we can afford to use UAVs to, to do those same counts. So. Um, it's apples with oranges in terms of the technique but in terms of cost and efficacy in the field that's um sort of a good a good um level playing field
4: hmm. i've got a good question with you. you mentioned line of line of sight if i wanted to uh to count some some say a bird or even sea creature that was in such a remote area that i couldn't get to are you saying you can't do it because the drone's not in line of sight
0: so so technically we could do it with a military style drone uh, but if we were doing uh, or using the techniques and the equipment we're using now, we'd still need to visit the site um, to to access it and do the counts. Mm.
2: So you were just describing the um, the fact that you don't actually know the answer, which is why you've got counters and drones. Um, how different are those results at the moment? And and what would be the next step to work out which data set maybe is most useful going forwards?
0: So in, in terms of precision, um, that variance around some sort of mean, um, the uh, UAV-derived counts are an order of magnitude, so nearly 10 times better uh, than the ground counts, so it, it's a remarkable difference, and it essentially shows that um, UAV counts would be the way forward if you mm. want more precise counts.
2: But how how different are the results in terms of absolute numbers? Like like if, if you if one was correct over the other, are we talking twofold difference, a hundredfold different count?
0: So that, that's the other interesting thing in terms of how different they are. Uh, fairly consistently, UAV derived counts are higher than ground counts, um, and it, it really depends a little bit on the difference. Species we worked on, uh, sometimes it was sort of almost level pegging, uh, sometimes it was 10, 20% higher. Hmm. So, I mean, the,
1: the interesting thing here is, you know, we're coming back to where we started, we're not talking about the equivalent of driverless cars being, you know, ecologistless cars ecology departments but but you know you, you guys are still involved i mean obviously if you're you're not doing you're still doing the counting this is not automated computer-based counting i mean you're just using the drone for the perspective and the and the locale in the sense aren't you because the the video is recorded you go back and in the comfort of your own living room or, or wherever or laboratory you're you're then doing the counting in a more controlled less i, I suppose distracting way Is that
0: yeah, absolutely, I th- and I think uh, if you actually drill down into the the cost element of it and the amount of time you need to spend in the mm-hmm. field, in reality, ground counters still might be more efficient cost wise. Mm. So it's not that we're going to slash the budgets with this approach. It's rather that um, it's going to cost about the same, but we're potentially going to get a much more precise result. Mm. It's interesting stuff. So, so what what do you see
1: as the the, the future now for this? Do you, do you think this the use of UAVs will become the, the standard in all sort of ecology areas uh, where, where there is this type of counting. Or do you think there's there's still going to be a scenario where you, this won't take over? I mean, we've seen we've seen you know cell counting and other things where it's gone from people who used to look down the microscope and literally Mm. count to today we know what a ridiculous thing to do you wouldn't do that you know it's so so automated now um machines just do it automatically it's very easy so i think jeff still you
0: just still counting
1: yeah Uh, are are we is that where you see this going or do you think it's it's sort of it's different
0: um, it, it's a hard one to answer at the moment. I think drones, as with much technology, we're right on the peak of kind of these really inflated expectations at the moment. Mm. And um, there's actually a thing called a, a hype curve um, or a hype cycle, yeah. right. um, yeah. which yeah. you might have talked about yeah. before. Which, um, and we're on the peak of the inflated expectations <laughs> now, yeah. and so we're going to drop into this trough of disillusionment. <laughs> and then
4: <laughs> everybody <laughs> stay <laughs> calm, yeah. and then we're going to crawl back up
0: to some sort some of plateau reality. Of, of reality. Yeah. Um, and... So I, I think it's going to be useful for a lot of different approaches, but it's not going to address everything that we yeah. think it might address at the moment.
1: Look, I think it's, it's a great use of technology that, mm. in other other hands, is either trivial or probably bad. So I think uh, getting this stuff out there is interesting, and and certainly there's, I mean, there's got to be examples where um, where people just can't go, and we want to do more of this. And they have this, I have this image of just fields of drones, you know, heading out and <laughs> counting, and you know, you it's know, the, of the drones. So well, the precision, as you say, is important, and being, you know, you, you can't can't really stand by data if you go back every day and it's out by 25% from the previous day and so you've got to be able to get the precision. So Rowan, uh, keep up the drone work. We hopefully will um, hear more about this as as it goes on but it's it's very interesting and, and it'll be interesting to see as you start applying this to different areas just how much the, our knowledge of certain species and their populations changes from what it currently is. Thanks for chatting to
0: us. Fantastic. Thanks for having us on.
1: Dr. Rowan Clark is a lecturer in ecology in biological sciences at Monash University. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in a moment, we're going to be talking about the day of immunology. Sounds uh, very, very uh, concerning, but it's not, folks. It's exciting. Uh, hang with us. We, we, <laughs> no, it's not day of the trip. It's, geez, the, the science fiction geeks are in the studio today, folks. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to 3RR. 3RRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRRR Uh, we're back there's a lot of excitement in the studio today folks uh i had to throw a bucket of cold water on my uh, co-host a moment ago though it's so excited about drones delivering packages or something anyway uh in the studio now we have professor dale godfrey who is from the doherty institute and the university of melbourne and he's also part of the executive of the arc uh center for advanced molecular imaging dale do i have it all uh, that'll do it don't yeah. miss anything yeah, <laughs> good. now the thing coming up which is exciting we've had you on the show before but uh, the thing coming up is the day of immunology and it sounds pretty you know heavy Tell us a bit about what... Well, first of all, why do
6: we need a Day of Immunology? Well, there's lots of exciting things happening in the field of immunology, having an impact on infection and cancer. And mm-hmm. the Day of Immunology is an event that's been held annually for the last few years. It's a public event. We try to bring the science and the clinical potential of immunology to the to the general public. So it's held at um, several different states in Australia and also internationally. So many countries around the world hold okay. the Day of Immunology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's,
1: it's one of those things where we... Um, you know we take a lot of it for granted i think don't we i mean you know people go and get the flu shot and then yeah yeah, whatever yeah but someone's you know working very hard to make sure those those vaccinations are up to date every year and that all of these things are there for us um there seems to have been recently a bit of a turning away from uh some of this knowledge and i mean how, how do you guys react to that when you hear about people non you know not vaccinating and not utilizing some of the the things that have been built by you know teams
6: like yourself that there are always um, concerns and you can understand them people are worried about. Immunising, um, otherwise healthy people, especially mm. little children. And, and so, you know, you just have to try and present people with the facts about how vaccines are helping to protect us against all sorts of vaccine preventable diseases and save lives. People don't see people with polio anymore and yeah. they don't know the consequences of those diseases. And, and so they don't really have the same understanding of what used to be around all the time and how mm. vaccines are protecting us from those sorts so, of diseases.
2: I love the way that vaccination is being repositioned as kind of community service like that if you care about your community that you will vaccinate because Mm -hmm. that means you're not just being selfishly protecting yourself but you're protecting the people around Mm. you and I think that's a really powerful message that's starting to come across
1: yeah I think that's really good and it's also one of the things we've said on there before is that if you turn to someone and say you're a bad parent I, I know how I would respond to that but if you turn to them and say you have a responsibility in your community they will respond more positively so for those of you out there who are campaigning for people to vaccinate don't go around talking about people being bad parents you know Go for something more positive because you'll, you'll have a better effect. Most people fight back pretty hard on the first. So, Dale... Yeah. Um, I understand that you know you've got this theme this year: heroes and villains. Yep. Uh, give us some of the heroes. What are the heroes of mean I mean, you guys aren't going to be wearing spandex and stuff, eh? <laughs> uh,
6: well, you know, depends. It could uh, <laughs> I, yeah, hang on, I bet you are. <laughs> Perhaps not, but uh, yeah, some of the people in my lab maybe. Hello. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the theme is heroes and villains, and that's related to the to the um, the concept that many people understand: the immune system can be a hero; it can protect you against infectious mm. diseases like bacteria and viruses, but they don't. Understand necessarily that it can also be the cause of disease and when people find out i'm an immunologist a common question i get is how do, how do i boost my immune system mm. yeah and i usually say to them well, if you're healthy and and, uh, and you know uh, you really don't want to be boosting your immune system because there's all sorts of diseases that can come about through an overactive or misdirected immune system so the hero side of the, the immune system is what most people understand you know it, it's a essential for our defense against infection And vaccines work on that and they enhance the immunity to infection. But um, the immune system can be a very destructive force and and it goes in and it kills cells. That's how viruses are eliminated. It kills all the cells that are infected and causes inflammation and pain. And and most of the symptoms associated with a virus are actually your immune response going Mm. out of control. Mm. It's a bit like the Incredible Hulk. So most of the time you want your immune system to be calm and at peace with the world. You don't want it to be always overactive. So boosting it isn't a great idea in that sense. Fortunately the immune system has lots of different safety mechanisms that keep it under control. There's like lots of little switches on the cells that keep it switched off and, and prevent it from causing disease unless it's absolutely necessary. But there are diseases when the immune system gets out of control like allergies and asthma where the immune system is responding to otherwise innocuous things like pollens or cat dander Mm. and then there are a very serious class of diseases called autoimmune diseases where, for example, type 1 diabetes where your immune system attacks your pancreas and stops it from producing insulin or MS where the immune system attacks the central nervous system and there are many diseases like that that are really uh, directly a result of the immune system um, getting out of control and being overactive
1: Hmm. I mean one of the things I find interesting and we've we've heard a lot about this probably over the last decade but just just like when we've talked about the gut and gut bacteria and so forth and what that does for us i mean the immune system seems to be one of those areas of of biomedicine that we know a relatively small amount about because it's just that complicated i mean and it seems to be an area where over the next decade or two we'll be making like quite substantial you know you're talking about paradigm shifts in treatments for certain diseases as a result of our understanding of of the immune system
6: yeah that's right and that's an area where my lab's especially interested in trying to understand even the cells that and Mm. and the molecules involved in the immune responses and a really great example where immune therapy is becoming a a major game player in in disease treatment is in the context of cancer Mm. so in cancer it it cancer comes from our own cells but they're mutated and 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 the immune system can recognize these cells but it's got all these safety mechanisms holding it back from causing tissue destruction and so it's sort of trying to fight the cancer but with one hand tied behind its back and in that case that's a time when you really do want the incredible hulk of the immune system going full speed ahead against the cancer and so these terrific new drugs that are coming online now that basically they they take off the handbrake of the immune response and allow the immune system to get in there and attack the full the, the cancer with the full force and this is causing incredible changes in in the prospects of some types of cancer like metastatic mm. melanoma so there's a drug called ipilimumab This drug doesn't even touch the cancer itself. It just switches on the immune system or takes off the handbrake of the immune system and allows it to go fully unleashed against melanoma. Mm. And there are remarkable results with um, great uh, regression rates and long-term remissions in uh, many of these metastatic melanoma patients. And and these are starting to be applied to other types of cancer too.
1: So It's interesting when when you speak about that because I always had this image, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when when you use more traditional uh, responses like chemotherapy, in a sense you're decimating the immune system and every other part of the body that you don't want to be That's destroying. Right. And and yet we're starting to learn that the very thing that chemotherapies actually hold back are probably the things that are going to give us the most advantage.
6: Yes, so the immune system has the the terrific advantage that it's very specific. Mm. And if you can unleash it, it'll go in there and it'll target the cancer cells and for the most part you hope that it's going to leave the rest of your body alone unlike yeah. chemotherapy which mm. just wipes out any cell that divides. Mm.
2: Mm. I uh, I recently heard a talk from a senior executive of a global pharmaceutical company who was basically saying what we're seeing now is the beginning of the end of cancer. Yeah. Um because being a because I think it comes back to that whole idea that that cancer is yourself and um, normally your immune system doesn't want to attack itself but being able to have these drugs i think is is the way forward and where would you say australia is placed in being able to offer these new therapies to patients
6: australia is very well placed one of these therapies ipilimumab is now the frontline defense for melanoma and we have some terrific cancer researchers in australia and and leading research institutes like the peter mccallum cancer institute and university of melbourne and wehi and, and the victorian comprehensive cancer center that's just about finished in parkville Mm. that's just going to encourage more and more research it's amazing for australia a world yeah. leader in this field
1: yeah mm. now we we have this um it's interesting how we, we can get down these rabbit holes pretty quick as soon as we start talking about this because it's fascinating <laughs> stuff but um I, I was just wondering when so when we don't have a life-threatening type of cancer are there cancer type cells wandering around in our body that are just Taken care of by the immune system, and we don't know about it. Is that is that sort of standard practice within the body, or is it only when we sort of develop these particular incidents in our lives
6: that yes. uh, it switches on? No, there, there, it, it. it As far as we can tell, there are cancers that arise spontaneously and our immune system normally deals with them. Mm. And sometimes our immune system's in a constant little struggle with cancers and it's keeping them at bay and it can keep them at bay without completely eliminating them for years and decades. And there are cases where patients have a cancer return after decades because they've had immune suppression. Mm, And so their immune system stops doing its job and the cancers can come back.
1: Fascinating stuff. Now, uh, well, let's get back to the day of immunology uh, because it's easy to get off track. Um, What what sort of... um, activities are going to be around that people can get involved with, Del?
6: So the actual day is on the 29th of April but, mm-hmm. um, and, and on that day we have a series of public lectures and I'm one of the lecturers and mm-hmm. that will be at the Peter Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne. There's also a vaccination cafe at the Melbourne Town Hall, and that's where you can go along. You can get a cup of coffee and a flu or a whooping cough vaccine. Not not all in the same cup. Hope, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not by the no, barista. No, <laughs> no hopefully can not. Shelter. Shelter.
1: yeah, one one hand banging the coffee, and the other hand I'll, giving the
6: jab.
2: I'll have double shot pertussis, thank you.
6: <laughs> so, so you get a chance to have a you know bit of an education for your 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 brain and your immune system. You can talk to some immunologists at those events. There's some laboratory discovery tours that are being held across Melbourne at uh, you University of Melbourne and Weehigh and, and also in Peran, at Monash University there and at Clayton. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a scientific photography exhibition called Snapshots of the Immune System, and that's going to be launched on the 21st of April at St. Ali Coffee Roasters in South Melbourne. <laughs> so, uh, you can go along to that at, um, 7pm, and the event's free, but you need to RSVP. So there's a lot more information about this on the website, if I can mention that. Yep. The dayofimmunology.org.au. Yep. So
1: it's, it's just dayofimmunologyfolks.org.au, as, all as one word. Yep. Um, and I think there's a, there's a Twitter handle too, which is also at day of immunology, and uh, you, if you follow that, um, we'll, we'll share that later after after yeah. the show. But um, that will give you more information. Dale, it's 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 really interesting. I, I think it's you know everyone else has a bloody day these days. Why shouldn't you guys? That's right. We want our own day. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, <laughs> our you know, every 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 time I go to work, someone says, "Did you know it's the day of this?" I'm like, "Really? The day of pencil sharpening?" Come on, you know, seriously, <laughs> there's too much of this stuff. But this is thing. a good one. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's out of control. Um, this is a good one. I think um, you know people get involved, so they have got just over a week to look up some of those. Uh, things and rsvp and turn up but um they'll learn a lot about immunology and and what um what's going on here in melbourne and as you say the the doherty institute um folks you don't have to go into the university proper to find this place it's on the court street corner of yes. uh royal parade and grattan street and the lecture theater just inside the door so That's it's right. easy to get to and and um and worth having a look Dale, thanks so much for, for coming in and chatting to us today and um we didn't get to talk about your work much again, but uh, that's, right. that's okay. We'll do that another time. Um, so, folks, uh, yeah, have a look uh, at Um Dale, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Professor Dale Godfrey is uh, an immunologist from the Doherty Institute and University of Melbourne and part of the ASC CRC for Advanced Molecular Imaging. Well, we're almost out of time, but, uh, we've got some, you know, we've got some amazing stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Um, first of all, um, you may recall we interviewed Gene Cernan a couple of weeks ago, the last man to physically walk on Mm -hmm. the moon. Pretty awesome. And, you know, I was a bit smitten, I will say. We had to do a pre-record because I didn't think I'd be able to handle it live. So I phoned him up uh, a couple of hours before, but we will have some tickets to give away, um, in the coming weeks to see him live in melbourne don't ring now don't ring (laughs) do not ring now um because i don't have them um but we will be um also uh having a chat with the person i'm not going to tell you this yet but who is going to be emceeing that event at the Asta, which and i think it's on the uh, the last day of may and um a few of us will be there It'll be pretty exciting and he will be showing the movie the last man on the moon which um is actually it's a very very good documentary and then there'll be a and a for a while after that. So it's pretty exciting. We'll have some tickets to give away in the next few weeks. So that's pretty cool. Other than that, um, we've got a gender show coming up soon too. We're going to do a show just on gender in science, which will be very interesting. So I've been asked by a few people to do this. So this will be interesting as well. Other than that, that's it. So, uh, we're going to hand, hand over in a minute to the team from either Dr. Crystal. Thanks so much for coming in. Good to oh, see you. Always a pleasure. Uh, Dr. Jeff slash chromo <laughs> Always a pleasure. <laughs> Did we work sure. it out? call you? I got a couple of names, but I can't use one on there. No, just kidding. Speaking of rude names, uh
3: Chris KP. <laughs> uh thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been lovely.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh yeah no, I just saw Cam's just run over to uh Studio Two. Um I think my phone's ringing,
3: so that's uh you know don't call now, he 's call saying. now, I'm on
1: it. You're listening to Street Triple R. Remember, folks, it is April Amnesty. If you want to support the station and you haven't already done so, it's a great opportunity to get online and subscribe at rrr.org.au. Thank you for listening to Science. In a week's time, we'll be back to give you more. Until then, remember, science is everywhere. And have a great Sunday. It's not very sunny, but, you know, what can you do? <laughs> This has been a podcast
0: from 3 R 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.